Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. We're in the book of Revelation. We are looking at where the world is heading. And we're going to be in chapter 6, verses 7 through 11. And the title of today's message is, A Good Life Does Not Depend on Circumstances. What you're going to see in that title is the principle we're going to work with. It is the only principle we want to get out of this. We'll do some application at the end of it. But a good life does not depend on circumstances. Because what you're getting ready to see is we're going to jump into chapter 6, which is at the, the outset of year 1, 2, or possibly 3 of the tribulation period, the seven-year tribulation period. So we're in the beginning stages of that. And what we have seen in the previous weeks, just to give you the setting, is that now that we're in the tribulation, the Antichrist has been unleashed on planet Earth. World War III has been unleashed. Famine has been unleashed. So you have the first three seals that have been opened. You'll see another seal of death being opened. And then the fifth seal will be what we look at and focus in on, which is called the martyr's prayer that opens that seal, or that Jesus opens that seal for the martyrs. And we're going to focus in on the future believers in the tribulation to derive our application. And that's who we're going to focus in on. There's a lot of aspects there on the martyrs. I'm going to use them later on in what they're going through in heaven when we talk about heaven in Revelation 21 and 22, I'll come back to them, actually, because we actually learn a lot about heaven just from their interaction with God in the location that they're in. But suffice it to say, what we want to learn about today is their life and to give us perspective on our own life. These are what we call tribulation saints. We are called church saints And then in the Old Testament, they were called the Old Testament saints. So we're looking to learn from a future group called the Tribulation Saints. The Tribulation Saints are a very unique group. They're going to be made up of mainly Israel and Gentiles, but they're not the church. The church has been raptured and gone. The church is in heaven at this point in time. So these are people who have been left behind, left to go through the Great Tribulation, And they have actually come to faith in the Messiah through the witnessing of the two witnesses. Elijah is back on planet Earth witnessing. You have the 144,000, which we'll look at in a couple more weeks, witnessing. That's like having 144,000 Apostle Pauls scattered all over the planet witnessing for the Lord. And these people have gotten saved after the rapture. But unfortunately... They're going to have to go through the tribulation. And like I said before, if you miss the rapture because you're not a believer and then you get saved afterwards, you're probably going to die. You're probably going to lose your life because of martyrdom because they're not going to put up with believers at that point. They're going to be hunted down and killed. And the world's getting that way already in their mentality as we speak. They would love to just eliminate Christianity from the face of the planet, true Christianity, not the fake one. But what what are we going to learn from this? What are we going to learn from their lives? Well, a lot of people believe that their life would be good if their circumstances changed. A lot of people 
want to live a quote-unquote happy life and to be satisfied, to understand that, hey, I've got a good life here. They want that. And there's nothing wrong with that. I get that. But it's sometimes not reality. People desire to have, I wish I had a better job. I wish I had a different spouse, a better person to be married to. I wish I had a different house. I wish I had a different car. I wish I had just whatever it is. I wish my family wasn't so wacky. I wish my health or whatever was better. Whatever that is, I I don't know what the issue is. It could be a myriad of issues. But the people think that if those things just changed, then I would have a good life. And they go through life, and the reality hits them, and... The reality is, you may never have those things. The reality is, they start getting frustrated. They start getting anxiety-filled, stressed out, and really getting into depression because life is not turning out the way they thought it would. And they start telling themselves, life will never be good. And they broad brush all of life saying, based on my circumstances, my life is, quote unquote, bad. And that is not the perspective that Christians are to have. As you'll see with the the tribulation saints, what they have to go through, they go through the most awful time ever in biblical history. And the lessons we want to learn from them, and we're going to focus in on them, is that we are not to base our life on circumstances of what we desire out of life. We are to base our lives on what God desires for us. What do you mean? Well, it's simple. It's so simple a five-year-old can understand, but yet adults don't get this. And they get off track and they start getting worldly. What is God's desire for your life and mine? Number one, to know him. The whole theme of the Bible is to know who God is. Know him in salvation and know him in fellowship. The second thing is that you use the gifts he gave you to benefit his kingdom, not yours. That's simple. To obey him, to do what he says, to not protest what he is saying about our lives, to change And then that change is to lead into being conformed to the image of Christ. That's it. That's God's desire. Now, I can tell you this. If that's God's desire for you, then that's the template he's put on your life. And if his desires are in conflict with your desires, you're going to have problems. Because you may protest to God saying, why don't I have a bigger home? Why don't I have a better job? Why don't I have a better spouse? Why don't I have better kids? Why don't I have better parents? Why did you give me all this? Why did you allow all this to happen to me? I didn't ask. I just want to be a, just to have, live a simple life, but I don't want all these troubles and trials in my life. I, don't, I just want my health back. And God is saying, that might be your desires, but my desires for you are these. And if I were to give you those things, they would be in conflict with what I am trying to do in your life. If I did give you the bigger house, you wouldn't be as dependent on me. If I did give you the better boss, you wouldn't be dependent on me either. See, I'm doing something in your life 
for your destiny. I am doing something that I need of you for the next life. This is not all there is. So I'm going to use the trials and tribulations that you're going through to create a character in you that has the ability to handle what I'm going to give you in the future. So if I gave you all this other stuff, your character would be ruined. And I'm not going to do that. I am a good father, God is saying. And I don't give my kids serpents. If he asks for bread, I will give him bread. But if he asks for something that's going to harm them, I will not give that to them. I will withhold that from them because I am not going to give you anything as a parent that will destroy you. That's why your life is harder than the average bear outside. We have to just be real about that. As a Christian, if you're living it out and you're really sold out for Christ, your life will be sometimes double or triple the problems because of what God is allowing. And two, we have enemies that are uh, constantly attacking us. Do you realize that if you're part of the world, you sleep fine? You don't have any really issues. You look at them and they're just getting along with life. Yeah, they have a few bumps in the road. They just keep rolling, don't they? You know why? There's no destiny. They're what's called in the book of Revelation, earth dwellers. It is a technical term you will see in the book of Revelation even today and next week. The term earth dwellers means that these people are people of the world. And the world rewards its own. You and I have been deployed into enemy territory. And that enemy wants to take us out. So God allows these things to happen for a reason to create the destiny for us. Just to give you some ideas about the focusing on the martyrs, again, they've just been saved. They might have been saved upwards to maybe five years to maybe one year. That's it. That's it. And they're asked to give up their lives for Christ. So we're not talking a very mature person that's been a Christian for 30 years. They just got saved right after the rapture, and we're several years into the tribulation. There's maybe some years prior before the tribulation starts, maybe two, three years. Very, we would consider a baby Christian. But as the Apostle Paul expected the Corinth church, he expected after three years that the Corinth church was completely mature, and they weren't. So these people have been on a rapid growth process, and they have grown so much, they're willing to give it away in death. And so we want to gain some perspective. We want to gain some application from them to understand why are they so willing to lay down their lives for the Messiah and give up all that this world has to offer for Jesus. Let's go to Revelation chapter 6. We'll start in verse 7. This is the fourth seal. We're going to look at death coming. So this is what they're going to experience. These believers, I want you to think about your life and then compare them to them. These believers are now dealing with the Antichrist. They're dealing with a world war that caused famines and plagues all over the place. And now death has now going to be introduced by the death angel. Verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, this is Messiah opening the seals. I heard the voice of the fourth living creature. This is the guardian cherub saying, come and see. So I looked and behold, 
a pale horse. The idea of pale should be translated ashen or yellow-greenish or the color of a human corpse is what the writer is trying to get across. And the name of him who sat on it was death, and Hades followed with him. The idea, this is a death angel. This angel has been given the task to wipe out humanity, wipe out basically a fourth. And you'll see this in just a bit, but I want to capitalize a little bit on the the term Hades. Death means that this angel is going to take their physical life, and then the fact that Hades is following behind him, it's a, a metaphor for the place, is that physical life will be captured, and then their souls will be captured and taken to Hades. That's the technical word, but we say hell in our common parlance. But really, to be accurate, biblically, we say Hades. That's where the unregenerate who die go. They go to Hades. And let me show you a little little bit so you can understand the concepts of Hades and the underworld. The big blue circle is planet Earth, okay? And what God did, and this is before the cross, is created Sheol, or the place of the dead. In Greek, it's called Hades. In Hebrew, it's called Sheol. And there's actually four compartments in it. The first compartment was paradise, or Abraham's bosom, as it was commonly called in the Old Testament and even in the Gospels. And this is where believers went who died but were believers, but the cross not, had not happened, so they cannot go into the entrance of God. So this is where all believers went to Abraham's bosom. Jesus went to paradise after the cross as well. If you recall, today you'll be with me in what? Paradise or Abraham's bosom. Luke 16 is another reference to that. The other side was the pit, Apollyon or Abaddon as it's called. That's where demons were temporarily confined and are still temporarily confined if they act out of authority. They're put there. This is why they begged Jesus not to send them to the pit. And then you have Tartarus was another compartment in Hades or Sheol where the angels of Genesis 6, the fallen angels who cohabitated with women and created the Nephilim, that's where they're confined permanently until the great white throne judgment in Tartarus. And then over here in the abyss is the other area where unregenerate people go. So you, you have these four compartments. Well, Now, after the cross, paradise is empty because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We go to heaven as believers because the cross has happened. The penalty has been paid. And so we have access to heaven now. So that place is empty, but the other ones are still full. So people still go here. Eventually, after the the millennial kingdom, this is all destroyed and people are sent to the lake of fire along with the devil and his angels. But that's the term Hades. That's where it's coming from. So these people, it, it, it's a clue that this death angel that goes out kills unregenerate people, not believers. Okay, Believers are already having a hard time right now, but he's, his focus is to kill a part of humanity, and, and we'll see in the text, we'll see how many he kills. And it says, and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, that's war, with hunger, that's famine and starvation. That's what's happening already in the seal judgments. And with death, the idea is all kinds of different ways to die and by the beasts of the earth. If you do the math today, there's about 7.5 billion people on the planet. 
If this was to go down today, a fourth of them would be killed by this death angel, which is about 1.9 billion people, nearly 2 billion people. This angel goes out and slaughters, and just as a penalty. And he slaughters them, and then they're taken into Hades to wait final judgment. In the different ways that people die, he's explaining it. War has happened. World War III has already happened. Hunger, famine, death, and beasts of the earth. I think we all understand how hunger and war could kill people. But then what about these beasts of the earth? Well, there's several interpretations of this, and I want to unpack this just a bit. The beasts of the earth actually might be a reference to human leaders, evil leaders. The word in Greek is therion. It's not zoon for animal. And translated living ones by the living ones of the earth. And it could be reference to the evil leaders under the one world government, uh, dictators and such, that would kill people. And that's a legitimate translation. The other translation is it's referring to animals, maybe. And perhaps it's related to what you're really not thinking about in terms of animals, in the class of animals. It is saying that these people are also killed by animals, but in our modern day and age, it's not like you're going to go out and then bears are going to attack people and lions and tigers and stuff like that, oh my, are going to start attacking people. It could be something very different because history tells us different beasts have killed more people than a lion or a tiger or anything like that. And you know what the one beast is that's killed more people? A rat. Anytime you look in history and you see where plagues have hit humanity, it's due to rats. And a lot of the commentators will actually say this could be a reference to rats and even microorganisms, parasites, bacteria, and viruses, which would be in the class of animals that would be able to kill people. A rat could kill far more people than a lion could. And this goes to the interpretation that it's not really what you think. With that many human bodies all over the planet, dead, without burial, the rats will go crazy. I want you to think about rats. The bubonic plague wiped out nearly a third of Europe's population. It brought typhus. With over four centuries, the rats have killed over 200 million people with typhus. Think about this with rats. If you go into an area and you kill 95% of the rat population, within one year, it's repopulated. You can't get rid of them. And they carry, because of their fleas, about 35 diseases that can kill you. Rats are no good, man. So a lot of Bible interpreters say it could be the beast it's referring to as rats, or even at a smaller level, the parasites, bacteria, and viruses that we're finding out that our drugs are being resisted by them. The antibiotics don't work on them, and we're finding different things like plagues are back. And more diseases have killed so many people than any war on the planet. I want you to think about this. In World War I, 30 million people died of influenza. 8.5 million soldiers in World War I died of disease like cholera, typhoid, dysentery. 6 million people died of typhus. And that's just World War I. In the Civil War, disease killed more people than soldiers. So without sanitation, no safe drinking, food is contaminated by rats, disease, anthrax from dead bodies or whatnot, 
The beasts that John might be referring to are microorganisms, perhaps. Not so much lions and tigers, but microorganisms that can wipe out entire populations. Nearly two billion people dead, just like that, by this angel. Now, again, I give you that context so you understand this is what these believers are living in, for goodness sake. They're watching people all around them die, and they don't know if they're going to die either. Hence, now we focus in on them. Let's go to the text. Verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under or at the base the altar the souls of those who had been slain. Now, these are the believers. These are the tribulation saints. And guys, right in the onset of the tribulation, it tells you how they died. They were slaughtered. But notice where they're at. They're at the base or under the altar. This is in heaven. In heaven, heaven is very dynamic. Heaven has a temple that Moses copied that God sits in. It has a throne room. It has the new Jerusalem. It's very dynamic, has different situations in that location. And so right now we're in the throne room, but we're in the temple throne room of heaven. And notice that they're at the altar or under the altar in that sense or around the base. Now, to give you some idea, let me show you some pictures of Moses' tabernacle. Moses patterned this tabernacle off of what he saw from God on the mountain. But what he saw was what he saw in heaven. So he patterned it off it, and it's a smaller replica. And this is the altar it's referring to. Uh, Not the altar of incense, but the the altar of burnt offerings. This is where the offer would come in. So here's what I want you to see. I want you to see the progression, okay? The progression is as you enter into a relationship with God, you first have to have an altar of sacrifice that has to come from Messiah. Then as I move here, I have to have fellowship with the Messiah. I have to wash myself. And then I can enter into the holy place. I can go beyond the veil because of what Messiah has done. So you can see the progression. So where they're at is right here at the altar. It indicates that they're not only saved, but something has happened to them. Let me show you some other pictures, and you can see some better pictures. There's what the altar would have looked like in the wilderness with Moses. And then when they made the temple later on in Solomon's day, this is Herod's temple, by the way, the altar was enlarged, and it was huge, and that's where they had all the burnt offerings, and it would be a bloodbath with all the slaughtering of the animals. And then I think we have a picture of what it looks like with the horns on the altar. So you would take the animal, the priest would take the animal on the top and burn it. It would be a burnt offering. But they had already sliced the animal's neck, and they had drained the blood out of the animal and caught the blood. Well, the blood was all on the base of of the altar. So if you would have went there, there would be blood everywhere. It was just bloody, like you walked into a butcher shop. It's just blood everywhere on the ground. That's the position of the martyrs. They're on the base of the altar where the blood would be poured. That's significant. That's a sign. That's a talking point, so to speak. It's sending a message through that. What does it mean? Well, It means this, this is not a vicarious substitutional sacrifice like Messiah's. This is a sacrifice 
suffering in discipleship. That's what this is. It is a sacrifice of discipleship. Okay? They're not earning their way to heaven. They're, the fact that they're at the altar means that they have come by the way of Messiah to be saved. They're not saving themselves. The base of it means that they're being sacrificed for discipleship, which means that they're living this verse out. Romans chapter 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, what? A living sacrifice, acceptable God, which is your what? Reasonable service. That this is the expectation of you and I and of them that we become living sacrifices, willing to give up our lives, whether that's physical life like they did, which is the ultimate, or what we want out of life. We must submit, according to this verse, which is our reasonable service, which is this is what God is expecting of us, that we give up our hopes and dreams of what we thought our lives would be and submit it to his desires. If anything that I want out of life doesn't match what God's desires are, I am not dying to self. That's the idea of dying to self. I've got to die to my dreams, my goals, to his, and simply accept life as he brings it to me. And that's difficult for a lot of us. That's difficult for me. I fought that forever, guys. And you can fight it and fight it, but you're not going to win. He will eventually break you like he broke me. He will break you down if you keep fighting and keep fighting and saying, I want my life. And he's going to say, you have no idea the dead end you're taking yourself. You will eventually destroy you, and I have so much more for you in the next life. I need you to let go of your dreams and embrace your destiny. And it took forever for me to get that. It took all of my 20s, all of my, from 20 to 29, it took a decade to break me of that. A complete decade to break me of that. Don't be like me. Don't struggle and wrestle with him at night for 10 years. Don't do that. But this is what they're doing. They went into this possibly year one, year two of their salvation. Can you imagine? Wow. Let's go back to the text. I want to go back to their souls. They're under the altar. You understand the sacrifice. They're in their souls of those who had been slain. The idea of soul is they're without a body. Now, when someone dies, you know that we we put their body in the ground, we bury them or whatnot, but their soul goes to be with the Lord. They're in their soul form, but they're without a body because the resurrection hasn't happened. Now, these are tribulation saints. The church's resurrection has already happened. We would have our bodies as we're in heaven, but they will be without bodies until the second coming. And you can see this in Revelation 20. They are given their bodies at the end of the tribulation. So they're in a soulish form. You can still see them. You can see the outline of them. And so they're very much active. They're very much aware of what's going on. And notice that the term is they have been slain. That's important to understand this term. It's savazo in Greek, which means that they have been butchered. They have been put to death by violence. They have been morally wounded So it wasn't just lethal injection. 
Whatever happened to them, they were slaughtered like an animal. Now, that's important because as they're going to cry for vengeance, that is a violation of the Noahic covenant. God established the Noahic covenant a long time ago after Noah's flood and said one of the parameters of human life is I don't want you killing each other and murdering each other. So there's a death penalty attached to that. If you take a life, then you will give your life. And that was established with Noah. So what's happened with them is their lives have been unjustly taken, butchered, slaughtered, taken away from them, just like ISIS uh, beheads Christians in the Middle East or whatnot. Same thing, they're butchering. That's what we're talking about. They've been butchered unjustly. They've been killed unjustly. And it's important to understand that. But let's take a time out before we move any further. I want you to reflect on their lives. They never will experience life as you and I have experienced it. We're in the age of grace. They're in the age of the tribulation. They never will raise a family. They never will have kids. They never will experience the golden years. They never will have grandkids. They never experience the American dream of making money, having a big house, having nice cars, and taking exotic trips. They won't experience that. They won't ever put a bumper sticker on their back of their car saying, I love Jesus. They won't do that because they won't even have a car. There is no plastic, fake Christianity about these people. They are sold out for Christ. What you see is what you get. They're the real deal. They're not fronting an image on Facebook saying how wonderful they are. They don't have a thousand followers on Facebook and putting up nice little verses and thinking how spiritual they are. These are the gut-wrenching, trench-living Christians. They get it. And they're willing to give up their life. They experience poverty because they're starving to death. They're ridiculed, mocked, tormented by the world, persecuted, just like the genocide that's happening around the world to other Christians in other countries. There's a flat-out genocide happening, and no one's talking about it, especially in the Middle East with the Muslims. The Muslim religion and communism, those two items are killing most of the Christians in this world. There's more Christians dying than it ever has in 2,000 years. What's happening? Satan is ramping up his game, guys. These are the real deals, and I want to state that because I want us to compare our life with them. You know what we do when we compare? We get into very dangerous territory because we will always compare up what we think is up. People doing better than us. Well, I want that because they have that. I want that because they have a bigger house or they want to have a better car. They have this, they have that. And you want to say, those people above you are worldly. They're worldly. They just flat out sold out for the world. Why would I envy the world? Well, they have an easier life. Yeah, I know because the world rewards its own. These Christians, does anyone ever in Joel Olstein's church or Rick Warren's church or Bill Hybel's church say, hey man, that sounds great. That's the kind of life I want to live, sold out for Jesus where I could possibly live lose my life. No, it's not happening, right? Because a fake brand of Christianity is being sold on the American public. It's not real. It's just not real. The kind of junk Rick Warren tells people or 
Andy Stanley or any of these joy boys say, oh, your life could be incredible, you can be rich, God wants the best for you, really? Well, what do you do with this passage? What do you do with the martyrs who got killed in the tribulation? You're having your best life now? I mean, seriously, that's true biblical Christianity. But yet what's being sold to us is fake. This plastic Facebook, I look good, here's the little verses for you and I, isn't that great? It's all fake. It's a joke. It's not real Christianity. That's how to live life as they did. And what did they give up? They had nothing like you and I have. Nothing. And their life was cut short. Now, why were they killed? Why were they killed? Now, let's go back to the text. Two things. For the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Those are the two reasons why this happened to them. Why? Unlike what's happening today where believers are selling out and compromising with the word of God, not saying this is what it says, thus saith the Lord, transgender is wrong, homosexuality, lesbianism is wrong. They won't state it. These people do. And you know what it does? It gets them in all kinds of hot water, just like it'll get you and I in hot water. When you state the truth because you're saying, thus saith the Lord, the Bible says this, you are going to be the enemy. Enemy number one. My young adult class today, we were talking about what Facebook is doing, what Twitter is doing to silence anybody telling the truth. Not only just conservatives, but Christians as well. This shadow thing that they're doing with Twitter accounts and Facebook. Don't even let your thing come up and be seen by anybody if you're giving articles or saying anything Christian or whatnot. It's a mild form of persecution, by the way. And it's coming. You're going to see now legal persecution come against the church in America, and eventually you're going to see hard persecution come against the church. But right now we're having soft and legal persecution. Do you know in California, starting in January this month, that now you can put on your forms that you fill out, male, female, or whatever, I'm a cis, or whatever that is. I don't know. There's like 53 different types of things in California. We're crazy. We're going to let people determine their gender when that goes against science? It's not even a religious thing. It's a science thing. You're going to go against your DNA? What are you, crazy? Yeah, we're crazy. I know. Yes, we're crazy. We're not in reality anymore. Yeah. That's what happens when you don't go to the anchor of God. Okay, so they are getting slaughtered and butchered for the word of God. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's happening right now in our country, the fever pitch hatred of Christians because of the word of God. They hate us, and you have to come to terms with that. It's a hard reality that the world doesn't like you. But Jesus warned us they hated me. They're going to hate you, right? So we should accept that and understand the consequences that come with it. Do not commit the sin of silence to avoid persecution. These martyrs said it like it is. Here it is, man. Deal with it. And it got them in trouble. They were probably arrested, brutalized, tortured, and then killed. And notice this. And for the testimony which they held. You know what that is? It's not their personal testimony of getting saved. No, 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 no. It's their loyalty to Christ. They got killed for the word of God and their loyalty to Christ. 
what does that mean? Okay, there's a term you'll see through the Gospels and then all into Acts and into the Epistles. Paul will say it in Romans, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel. The idea of being ashamed of Messiah is a prevalent theme, not only in the Gospels, but through the book of Acts and into the Epistles. What do you mean? Well, back then... A lot of believers came to faith in Messiah, but would not identify with him. They were secret believers. A lot of them, in fact, a lot of the Jews would not be baptized. That's why Peter has to get on to them in 1 Peter. They wouldn't be baptized because baptism meant they had to publicly identify with Messiah, and it got them in a lot of hot water. In fact, they were cut off. And so the term shame got put on those Christians because they were ashamed of being identified with Jesus because of all the heat it brought them. And my friends, this is happening today. A lot of Christians are secret Christians. They're believers. They're all saved. They're going to heaven, but they don't talk about it because they're ashamed it's going to upset so-and-so. It's going to upset this person. It's going to upset that person. And what happens is they don't want their life to get messed up. They want that promotion at work. So you know what they do? They stay silent. Because, man, if I say anything, man, I'm not going to get the promotion. They're going to give that other guy the promotion. So anyway, they stay silent. And what they're exhibiting, this sin of silence, the message is they're ashamed of Jesus. They're ashamed of him. Can you imagine a believer being ashamed of Messiah for all he's done for them? It's a big problem. And that's what's happening in our Christian church in America, they're ashamed of Jesus and what he has said. They're afraid it's going to offend somebody. Not them. We're going to stand on the word, and we're not ashamed of Messiah, and we're going to stand right in your face and tell you what the deal is. You've got to understand the time and the climate. They're facing the horror of Babylon. They're dealing with her. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about that. Jesus mentioned that this would be the worst time in history, and, and in all of a discourse in Matthew 24, he mentioned this. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. All nations. There's not one left out. If you believe in me in the tribulation, every nation will hate you. This is primarily reference to Israel, by the way, who a lot of the, the core of them are getting saved at this point in time in history in the tribulation. And then many will be offended. Yeah, just like they are today. And will betray one another and will hate one another. And then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Let's just stay there. I want you to notice they'll betray one another. A primary reference to Israel, but it's a reference between the dividing line between unsaved Israel and the remnant Israel who believes. The unsaved, earth-dwelling part of Israel will turn their brothers and their sisters and their closest relatives into the authorities for believing in Messiah and give their own family members over to the whore of Babylon. Can you imagine that? Their own family members doing that to them. Well, right now, we can definitely see even in our lives how the sword divides our families. Some people are on God's side, and some people are not. And look at the difference between the two. Jesus divides. The truth divides. And so even at this point, they actually betray one another. They give them over to the authorities. Okay, so who are they facing at this point in time? Who are they dealing with? Well, I've mentioned it several times. It's the whore of Babylon. The whore of Babylon is the false religious system that is developing right now. It came from Babylon. 
it's in the form of all false religions, but God calls this false religion the whore of Babylon because she seduces people. Notice this in Revelation 17. We'll talk about her later on, but just a brief summary of her. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot, this is the whore, who sits on many waters. She comes from the peoples. With whom the kings of the earth committed fornication. So the governments and the religious system are actually going to cooperate together, by the way. They're doing that right now. And the inhabitants of the earth, the earth dwellers, that's a technical term, were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. They can't think straight when they combine the government and this religious system. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. That's the global government under the Antichrist, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. We'll talk about that later. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornications, false religions. And on her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. It's talking about she's the source of all false religions that started at the Tower of Babel and are here. That means every cult that you see, Jehovah Witnesses, Mormonism, Catholicism, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, you name it, they're all from her. They come from her, not biblical Christianity. It's Satan's counterfeit, okay? And so we have some images I wanted to show you real quick. This is her. She's the whore. She is false religion that seduces people. In Zechariah, she's in this basket because she is married to commercial Babylon. We learned about this last week. This is, the basket represents commercial Babylon, and she's religious Babylon. And she's being taken eventually to Iraq, and Babylon will one day be rebuilt. It will be the source of all these false religions. But let me make the point. She will be responsible for the death of these martyrs. Because this happens in the first half, half of the tribulation. The Antichrist hasn't went on his rampage yet. He comes in the second half of the tribulation. So she is responsible for their deaths. The idea right now, if you can understand what's currently going on in the world, is that this false religion, whether it's false Christianity or this tolerant religion and all faiths are welcome, all roads lead to God, and all this junk, this ecumenical movement, is her. Now, they say they're for tolerance, don't they? They always talk about tolerance, but if you give a Christian view, they're not tolerant of that, right? That's right. She doesn't tolerate Christianity. No, 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 not true belief. So you see the mindset now, and it actually makes people intoxicated. They can't think straight. Have you seen people on the news being interviewed about their views and their morals? They're like intoxicated, like a drunk man. They don't think straight when they're seduced by her. So anyway, she is going to be the culprit that kills everybody during that first half. She is the problem. Verse 6. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Once the one world government is formed, symbolized by this beast, that's the revived Roman Empire, she sits on top of it. Notice her position. She's on top of it. They're using her to bring everyone together. Don't think that, that the United States or Europe is just going to go completely secular. It won't. It's going to turn into a pagan spirituality that escorts her as the glue that binds all people on this planet. And guess who's going to be resisting her? 
the believers in the tribulation, the 144,000, the two witnesses, and Elijah are on the ground. And they are going against her. So, so you know what she does? She can't kill the two witnesses. She can't kill Elijah because he's glorified. She can only go after the mortal believers. And notice her cup is full of their blood. She's spilling that. Okay. Let's go back to the text. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true? That's the term for Jesus, holy and true. It means that he's righteous. And because he's righteous and holy, he must exact punishment until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. The technical term is earth dwellers. I'll unpack that next week. How long until you avenge us? That is very different kind of prayer than we have heard from the Gospels, isn't it? Forgive those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you, right? You've heard Messiah say that. Stephen prayed for forgiveness for those who were stoning him. Jesus from the cross prayed for the Roman soldiers. Forgive them. They know not what they do, right? But why is this prayer different than what we have been taught? Why are they able to say, when will you take judgment on the ones who killed us? How long until you avenge our blood? And they have every right to say that. Every right to say that. Several things of why it's different. They're not on earth. They're in heaven. And in heaven, God's will is done. On earth, it's not being done right now. Our prayer is, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah? We're praying for that to happen. That's their prayer. May your will in heaven, we're in heaven now, your will happen. So people who do this to them, whether it's you know the mayors of the town, the city officials who slaughter these Christians because of the whore of Babylon, if they don't get saved, then there's no one to pay their penalty. There must be an accounting of what they did. They shed innocent blood, relatively speaking. And hence, that's what they're praying for. They're praying for justice to happen that God would right the wrong. And that's what the tribulation is about. It's a different time period. It's not the age of grace. It's the age of judgment. And God is giving this world plenty of time to get figured out, get, to, get them to repent, and get them straightened out. But they're not. And so if you enter into this period of time and you're not straightened out, all you can expect is judgment for what you do. And that's what he's going to do. And so it's appropriate for them to ask because of the time period, because of the place they're in, and it is an appropriate request. It's the imprecatory psalms that you see David praying for God to wipe out his enemies. Those are perfectly acceptable to pray. Because why? It is not appropriate for you and I to take vengeance. We have to kick that off to God and say vengeance is his, right? So we give all vengeance to God. That's how we can forgive people. Forgiving means I give up me holding the penalty over them for what they did, and I give that penalty to God and let him deal with it in his justice. That's what they're doing. They're kicking it over to God saying, you deal with it. And so that's what they're requesting, and it's a perfectly acceptable prayer request. But notice what they didn't say. Did you notice? It's not what they say. It's what they didn't say. Never once did they ever say, this is not fair. How come you let him kill us? 
I didn't get to live out the kind of life I wanted to live, God. I didn't get to have a family and kids and retirement and fulfill all my dreams and owning a Baskin-Robbins ice cream shop. And I didn't have a thousand followers on Facebook. And I didn't get to make a name for myself. I couldn't leave a monument behind me at some place. Did any of them say that? No. All they asked for is justice. Justice. They didn't care about all that junk. We've been too washed over with this worldliness to understand what's happening to us. But they don't. And they understand that it's okay they didn't get that. They get their lives back. So verse 11, look at the reward. God rewards them. Then a white robe was given to each of them. White robe is the righteous acts of the saints. Revelation 19 is your, is your passage for that. That's a reward. It demonstrates that God's pleased with what they did, that their desire was his desire, and so they get rewarded for that. And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer. The way you can translate that in Greek is enjoy your rest. Your trials are over. That's the idea. That's another enjoyment of heaven. Until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed was completed. I'm not done yet. we got more to come, he's saying. And in fact, the rest of the martyrs will be killed by the Antichrist. And so that's coming. So they're told to rest, but here's the reward for dying to self. A white robe to symbolize that. So what God is saying is, when you live according to the way I desire your life to go, your life may not be what you thought it would be, but it's well-pleasing to me, and I will reward you for it. There's more involved in the white robe, I'm sure. We're just scratching the surface, but it's a big deal in the kingdom age. What's the application from something like this, man? This is martyrdom, death, death angel flying all over the place, killing people. What's the application? And again, if we're sitting here looking at our lives saying, my life is no good, you have the wrong mentality. You have to change your perspective. How do you do that? Well, here's the application. Understand the difference between healthy Christian adult functioning versus unhealthy Christian child functioning. These are very mature believers who can do this. And I get it. But child functioning on a believer's level is how a lot of believers live their life. What do you mean? Well, a lot of believers are living their life to avoid pain at all costs, to avoid stress at all costs, and to be honest with them. And if they were honest with you, they were not going to say this publicly, but, but to be honest, this is what they would say. Hey, Brandon, I don't really care about growing. I don't really care about learning a lesson through my trials. I have very little interest in becoming more like Christ. Just to be honest with you, I just want to get along. I'm moral. I'm trying to raise my family. I just want to just be left alone. And you know what kind of person that is? A child who lives in the moment. Has no thought of the future. Has no thought of anything else. Children live in the present. All they care about is if the present is going well. That's all they care about. That's child Christianity. But what about adults? What does adult mature Christianity look like? 
See, adults function differently than children. Adults understand there's multiple narratives going on in their life. Yes, God is not asking you to deny the reality of the pain that you're in. You might be in some legitimate pain, health-wise, financially, relationally. There might be some legitimate pain that you're suffering, no doubt about it. God's not asking you to say, hey, don't think about that. No, no, no. He's saying, I want you to think about that, but I want you to think about multiple realities in this sense, or multiple narratives, I should say, that I'm doing something through this, that I have a bigger plan for this, that I'm using this to your advantage, even though it's, it's painful and it stinks that what you're going through, something else is occurring at the same time. I'm preparing your future through it. See, adults can think on multiple narratives, not just the present. And so what God is telling you and I is, whatever you're not getting in life, there's a reason for it. Because destiny has DNA. Destiny has DNA. It is made up of coding sequences that I have to enact in your life in order to get what I want out of the DNA. And right now, Brandon, you don't have it. Right now, you fall short. Right now, there are gaps in your game that I need to fix and you need to go through. And right now, I'm preparing your destiny, but you're not ready for that destiny, so I must allow this and that into your life. That's hard. That's hard. But let me tell you what the alternative is. You have freedom to choose anything you want to do. You can decide, I want to grow through this, or I'm going to protest this. You can decide anything because God will give you the freedom to it. What is the alternative if I don't cooperate with God's desires for my life? If I protest it? Well, I can tell you this. God doesn't want a multi-generational accident. What do you mean? If you don't go with God's destiny, whose destiny will you go with? A destiny you create or a role that your family created? Or a role that your experience created? Or a role that your trauma created? Would you rather be ruled by what your family expects out of you, what your trauma expects out of you, what your experiences expect out of you, what your childhood expects out of you, or would you rather go with God's DNA? Because I can tell you this, if you say, I don't want to grow and I don't want to become like Christ, I just want to get my fire insurance and I'm good. I'm good. Well, guess what? You will forever be the caretaker in your family because that's the role you chose. You will forever be the star in the family because everyone put all the weight on you. You will forever be the compliant one. You will forever be the independent, self-sufficient, no one can touch you one. You will also be the lost child one. You will be the rebel one. Those are the roles. You will be the surrogate spouse to your parent. You will be the scapegoat. You will be the peacemaker, the people pleaser. You'll be the victim, and you'll be the addict. That's the alternative. There is no middle ground. If you don't become more like Christ, you will stay in the role that was created for you in the world. And do you want that one? Let me ask you this question. If you don't allow these difficulties in your life to shape you into that godly character of Christ, you will be forever stuck in that role. And let me ask you this question. What has been the life-damaging consequences of playing this role? 
What has it done to you? You already know what it's done to you. It's messed you up. It's made you crazy, hasn't it? It has. Just be honest. I got a quote this week, and I'll end on this. It's from Gail Godwin. It's from a novel. It's a secular novel. It has nothing to do with Christianity, but she nailed it when she said this. There are two kinds of people. One kind you can tell just by looking at them. At some point, they congealed into their final selves. It might be a very nice self, but you know you can expect no more surprises from them. No more adventure. No more learning. No more growing. It is what it is. Have you met people like that? That they're never going to change? There's a lot of them out there. Whereas the other kind of person keeps moving, changing, growing, learning. With these people, you can never say that X stops here. Or now I know all there is to know about them. That doesn't mean they're unstable. Ah, far from it. They're fluid. They keep moving forward. They make new trysts with life. And the motion of it keeps them young. In my opinion, they are the only people who are alive. She warns you must constantly be on your guard about congealing into that final self. What does your final self look like? God has the DNA for it. He goes, this is your destiny. This is what you look like. This is what I want you to look like. But just cooperate with me so I can get you there. But if that is not yours, you will congeal into your final self. And you will stop growing at some point in time and never make a move after that. You'll be alive. You'll be physically alive. But you'll become a zombie. A walking dead because you're not growing anymore. Far be it from anyone in this room to ever do that. I hope and pray it's not. But far too many Christians are like that. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.